as, uh, as folks are uh, continuing to make their way in, if you will um, turn, turn to your hymnals. We, we're taking requests now. <laughs> so, so it's going to be a hymn sing by the end of this. Um, but no, we had a request, and it's a, it beautifully ties in. Uh, hymn number 38, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. So let's stand and sing together. Hymn number 38. God, we again ask for your blessing on this third and final session today of our conference. Please, O oh Lord, guide us. Give us great encouragement. Lord, we pray that through our study of the creeds that you would call us to worship you, that we would bow down in our minds and our hearts to render to you all glory and honor and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Or just one note of housekeeping. We will at the end, uh, at the end of the session today. Uh, Dr. Truman has agreed to. Uh, to uh, always want to be careful of putting our guests on the spot, but he is, he's agreed, even even offered uh, to to uh, have a time of question and answer. So uh, be thinking of questions you might have, and uh, and he's promised he's going to answer them all um, uh, unequivocally. So, uh, <laughs> but no, we're very thankful for that. And uh, so, Carl, come on up and uh, finish it out. Okay, I want to talk in this last lecture on uh, practical significance of creeds and confessions. I mentioned uh, in, the, in the first uh, class, talked about, first lecture, talked about uh, the, the need for creeds and confessions being, a, being a, a biblical one. I think in the second, I gave a, an overview of the history. And in the third, I want to talk about how creeds and confessions can impact us today. What I'm giving in, in many ways is, uh, is very closely related to the little booklet that the OPC produced that, uh, that I wrote on why churches need confessions. What I'm going to give you this morning is, is a kind of expansion of the themes that I pick up there. <clears throat> I want to, to, to start, a couple of, there's a couple of things I've already, already noted on the way through that are practical 
benefits of having creeds and confessions. One of them is uh, creeds enable our worship to be very explicitly Trinitarian. And I suspect, just to elaborate on that point, I suspect that that is going to become an increasingly important issue in coming years. If it is the case that uh, Islam and Mormonism are two of the fastest growing religions in the world today, then that which distinguishes us from them is going to be very important. Probably in America, uh, more important maybe to distinguish ourselves from, from Mormons uh, than from Muslims, because there are many uh, social issues, I guess, on which many Christians would find common cause with uh, members of the Mormon faith. Uh, you know, nobody dreads the Mormons moving into their neighborhood, by and large, uh, other than the fact you might get your door knocked on a bit more frequently. Uh, but generally speaking, Mormons are clean living folk who represent precisely the kind of behavior and values that one would want in one's neighborhood. And I think that that has, has created a certain pressure towards the, the theological acceptability of Mormonism. Uh, there are high profile evangelical leaders who seem uh, maybe wobbling, might be putting too mild a, 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 a term to it. There are those who seem to be losing their grip on what differentiates uh, Christians from Mormons. So one of the advantages, I think, of having creeds and confessions is it allows us, if we build it into our liturgy, it allows us to explicitly state <clears throat> what we believe the Bible means in a way that clearly distinguishes us from those who may uh, frequently use biblical-sounding language but actually stand very far apart from us in terms of what they believe mentioned also in the last lecture the, the objection of formalism. People uh, will often criticize the use of creeds in church as being uh, formalistic. If, if you recite things, does that not mean uh, that ultimately your heart is, is deadened to them? <clears throat> formalism, I think, is a problem of the heart, not of the form. Uh, bottom line is, we, most churches have a hymn book. If they don't have a hymn book, they have a selection of overhead slides or they have uh, uh, a bulletin in which they print songs that are sung. We all have a canon of songs that we sing in our individual churches, and yet we rarely give a thought to the fact that a hymn book might lead to formalism. I think formalism is a problem of the heart, not of the form. As in when that uh, individual said, you know, why recite the, the Apostles' Creed will not, not lead to formalism? Well, it might well do so if one allows it to do that. In the same way that one can read the Bible in a way that is merely formal and has no impact upon one's mind or one's thinking. So uh, that's uh, one advantage of creeds and confessions would be Trinitarianism. And I would say that the, the formalist objection which one often hears is insubstantial. I think when you think about it, it very quickly disappears. Come now to some positive reasons for having creeds and confessions. And first of all, I would say, uh, I would make this statement, all churches and all Christians have creeds and confessions. Uh, to say the Bible, I have no creed but the Bible, one could facetiously say, well actually that's a creed and you don't find it in the Bible. Uh, that person standing holding their Bible up saying I have no creed but the Bible has a creed. I use the example in the book of the man who says, uh, I have no creed but the Bible. And he was, uh, I think, uh, a dispensational uh, congregationalist. And uh, there was some other characteristic of him. And essentially, he represented a form of Christianity without precedent in the Christian church. Uh, that was his creed. 
Uh, everybody has a creed or a confession. The difference between Christians is Christians who have creeds and confessions and write them down and are therefore transparent about what they believe and allow others to critique them. They allow others to test what they believe by the light of scripture and those who refuse to do so. That's the fundamental difference between those who have creeds and confessions and those who do not. It's a question of whether you write them down or not. So that's, uh, I think, an important point to make right at the start. Next point, and this is perhaps uh, a more unexpected one, but I think a very important one. Confessions delimit the power of the church. If you go to a church where you have no confessional statement and your minister stands up one Sunday and declares that infant baptism is legitimate and the next Sunday declares that infant baptism is not legitimate, it is much more difficult to get at that issue than it is if your church has a clear and public statement to which your minister has to subscribe and with which he has to comply. If you do not have a creed or confession in your church, then essentially what you're saying is the man in charge or the men in charge determine what the church believes on any given Sunday. Uh, there needs to be a form of accountability for Ministers, One might say that creeds and confessions, sometimes we think of them as documents by which it is possible to lord it over members of the church. Creeds and confessions are documents with which to browbeat members of the church. In actual fact, I think creeds and confessions are important for empowering members of the church. Because there are certain things that I do not have the right to say as a minister from my pulpit on a Sunday. And if I say them, my elders will call me to account. And if my elders fail in their duty, then my congregants have the possibility of calling me to account. Um, I've used the, you know, a friend of mine used to work in, in, in Inverness uh, back in Scotland uh, in the, when he was a student. And in the summer, he, would, uh, he worked at a, a kilt shop. Uh, and uh, he used to laugh. He said, I always know when the Americans come in. He said, because they want a three-piece suit in the clan tartan, you know, which is just about as big a fashion disaster as you could possibly imagine. Uh, but, you know, if somebody, if somebody from my congregation goes to, to Scotland next summer and decides to have a suit made in, in you know, the tartan of the clan Campbell and come back and use that suit to, to attend church every Sunday, I might draw them aside as, as a fellow citizen of this world and say to them, you know, that's a fashion disaster. You might want to do that. People will laugh at you. But I have no right to haul that person before the session of my church. They've committed, you know, it's a fashion crime. It's not a crime against the Lord. Uh, and my power is limited because the confession has no section on taste in dress. And it's a trivial uh, example. Perhaps it might never happen. But it brings home the fact that creeds and confessions place out in the public domain what is the limit of the power of the minister. Now, that's not to say that history doesn't give us examples of men who've been involved in confessional churches who haven't browbeaten people with a confession, who haven't uh, spun their church off into, into being cult-like. And I think cults, being a cult, it's not a function of, of your creed so much as it is a function of your atmosphere and culture and leadership culture. It's not to say that it can't happen, it can. But I think a creed or a confession is one more boundary or one more barrier that helps prevent that happening. 
So creeds and confessions delimit the power of the church. They define what the church is. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a congregant <coughs> ask me, saying at a Sunday school, we need to find out in this church who votes Democrat in this church and excommunicate them. And I said, you know, we're just not going to do that. First of all, I'm not going to be probing into the private lives of my congregants like that. And secondly, I have no power to do so anyway. Confession doesn't tell you who to vote for. It lays out certain principles that undoubtedly shape how you make the complicated decision of who to vote for. But the confession doesn't require you to vote for a particular party or a particular platform in an election. And I have no power to discipline somebody for so doing. So creeds and confessions delimit the power of the church. Very, very practical and obvious benefit. Next point, creeds and confessions offer succinct and thorough summaries of the faith. Uh, one of my friends, a guy called Bob Cara, is the dean, uh, the chief academic officer at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, and Bob and I used to meet up regularly at, at dean's meetings when I was dean. I remember Bob saying to me that, uh, that he always tells students that outside of the Bible, there is no book that you can carry in your pocket that has more truth in it per square inch than something like the Westminster Confession, or the Shorter Catechism, or the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the confessions of the church, the creeds, confessions, and catechisms, offer succinct and thorough summaries of the faith. Do they cover everything? No. Not everything, but they cover most of what is vital and important. Um, one of the questions, and maybe somebody will ask this question later, one of the questions comes about, you know, we got problems today that are different. Do we not need a new creed or confession? Or do we not need to revise the creed and confession to, to add this, that, or the other? We'd use a, as an example, um, you know, one that frequently comes up these days is, do we, need, uh, do we need to add a section on, on gay marriage? It comes up frequently from students at Westminster. You know, the Westminster Confession, do we, need, do we not need a section now on, on, on gay marriage? Uh, well, my answer would be, well, we could, we could add a section on it. But actually, I don't think we need to. Westminster Confession and Catechism are pretty clear on what marriage is. And though I don't think the Westminster divines had any idea of, of the kind of world we're going to be living in today relative to the chaos in the wider world over what marriage is and is not, I think their positive teaching clearly excludes what's being taught today. So we don't need to, to add to it. Uh, a few months ago, I was asked to sign a petition against child abuse. And I said, no, because... I already subscribe to the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechisms, and they're very clear about how people are meant to treat people. Child abuse is clearly ruled out by various statements in those documents. Now, that's not to say that one shouldn't sign a petition. There may be times when it's appropriate to make a particular public stand on a particular issue because it's under particular pressure. But I'm talking here about documents that the church needs to have embodied in its identity. I don't think we need a statement on gay marriage in our confessional documents because we have a clear and succinct summary of the faith that can clearly be applied to that situation in a way that gives us absolutely the right result. And just as an aside, I would say when you get into the game of adding to confessions because of the latest issue that's come up, you're setting yourself an endless task. Uh, I remember one of the board members at Westminster referred to... to confessional additions like that as being like oh, the whack-a-mole game. You know, when you, uh, I, Chuck E. Cheese's, I spent many a happy hour there with my kids, you know, 
the, the great thing about the, the one wonderful thing about Chuck E. Cheese is, is it's smaller than Disneyland. Now that's a real positive, isn't it? It's actually smaller than Disneyland. But there's a, the, the game I enjoyed most of all was Whack-A-Mole. You stand there hitting things. Uh, but uh, you know, unless you're fast, the mole's already disappeared. So you're always one step behind. And confessional revision can, can be like that if you're not careful. Because it takes so long to produce these things. You know, who knows? Gay marriage is the big issue today. Maybe it won't be the big issue in 10 years' time. Maybe it'll be something else pressing in on us, just as dramatically and just as powerfully. So the, uh, the, the, offer, uh, the, the fact these uh, documents offer succinct and thorough summaries of the faith, I think also makes them incredibly useful. We just need to work a bit harder often in how we apply them to the contemporary world. But also add a, 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 an extra uh, dimension to this, uh, spinning off from the clear and succinct summaries of the faith. They also offer us uh, like a, a bird's eye view of how Christian doctrine fits together. Uh, how things interconnect. I remember when I, when I first became uh, dean at Westminster, uh, I pulled out of the file, the, you know, the files on, on the faculty to see what exceptions people took uh, to the confession. I had a colleague who no is no longer at Westminster, but I noticed that he took an exception to chapter 19 of the confession, the whole chapter on the law of God. And I was thinking, but, but you can't just do that. You know, you can't just pull out the law of God and subscribe to the rest. Because it's like men rope together on the you know, north face of the Eiger. One of them falls off, and they all peel off the, the summit face at that point. Uh, it's like those, the, the Jenga game. You know, there are certain blocks, when you pull them out, the whole thing comes crashing down. Now, there are certain things in the Confession, uh, the Westminster Confession, that, that can be changed without really affecting much of the whole. The American Presbyterian Church has done that relative to the civil magistrate can change the teaching on the civil magistrates, and it doesn't bring the whole covenant structure crashing down. What you can do, though, when you have these clear and succinct summaries of the faith is it gives you a good example of how one doctrine connects strongly or weakly to another doctrine. And that, again, I think is important for the health of the church. Uh, I subscribe, I get a, a weekly magazine from the United Kingdom, The Spectator, which is it's a... It's, it's broadly, I guess, conservative political magazine. Contains some of the best writing and book reviews, uh, and they carry high-end advertisements, which indicates to me that a lot of people who read the Spectator earn a whole lot more than I do. And they have these advertisements for Patek Philippe watches. And I remember seeing one of these advertisements, and they're beautiful things. And I thought, you know, it's coming up. I think it was coming up to my wife and her twentieth anniversary some years ago. And I thought it might be nice to get a Patek Philippe watch to celebrate anniversary so I went online thinking you know you know I, I'm willing to go up to say four or five hundred dollars for a really nice watch for a, for a special occasion entry-level Patek Philippe's then 75 grand for an entry-level Patek Philippe you know that my house isn't worth a whole lot more than that I'm not gonna walk around with something more valuable than my house on my wrist uh, they are high-end watches they make Rolexes look like a, well Rolexes are kind of they look sort of chunky and blingy anyway to me. But they, they make Rolexes look like the poor man's alternative. Apologies to any Rolex wearers out there if I've offended you. But particularly if have a great, they have a great catchphrase, or well, they did at that time. And the comment was, you never really own a Patek Philippe. You simply look after it for the next generation. And it's kind of cheesy, but it's, it's a great catchphrase. And I think it's a catchphrase that summarizes the church's position relative to the gospel. 
The church never owns the gospel. The church merely looks after it for the next generation. And one of the ways the church looks after the gospel for the next generation is it has to understand uh, the serious nature of certain doctrinal challenges as and when they occur. And that involves you having a grasp of, or the leadership of the church at least, having a grasp of the coherent whole of Christian doctrine. One of the best ways of doing that is to study the creeds and confessions that summarize. How do we know that saying, well, Jesus is just similar to God rather than actually God? How do we know that's disastrous? Well, because the Nicene Creed and the history of the Nicene Creed tell us that. Good example recently in, from the British evangelical world, around about the time I moved over to the States in 2001, uh, leading British evangelical pastor and uh, sort of TV person, a guy called Steve Chalk, uh, wrote a book denying penal substitution. Twelve, eighteen months ago, uh, the Steve Chalk uh, uh, accepted gay marriage. It seems to me that those two things are connected. Not that everyone who denies penal substitution will necessarily end up where Steve Chalk has ended up, but it seems to me there's a definite connection between those two. When you deny penal substitution, you're required to revise your understanding of sin and your understanding of fallen humanity relative to God. I think sin becomes a horizontal thing. Sin becomes hurting your fellow man or stopping your fellow man, reaching his full potential. It, doesn't, it ceases to be an offense against God. You can therefore see how difficult it is to maintain a biblical position relative to homosexuality uh, once you've, you've abandoned that position of sin. Why wouldn't you allow two men who sincerely love each other to be married and, and to live together? Why wouldn't one do that? Surely it would be sinful to stop them because then you're hindering them from being who they really are. There's a connection between Chalk's denial of penal substitution and his affirmation of gay marriage. You can see that when you have an understanding of the sort of the, sort of the basic framework of Christian doctrine, how one doctrine connects to another. And one of the easiest ways to do that, you know, one of the hardest ways to do that, is to plough through four volumes of Herman Bavinck's dogmatics. Or even worse, read Louis Burkhoff from beginning to end. There are worse things you could do, but Burkhoff's pretty boring. I tell the students the one book you need to buy is Louis Burkhoff, but don't read it. Uh, use it as a dictionary. You know, it will drive you insane if you try to read it from beginning to end because it's tedious. It's an encyclopedia. It's a dictionary. You want to know what the homoousius clause means? Look it up in Louis Burkhoff, and it'll give you a brilliant paragraph that just beautifully sums it up. The easiest way to learn how theological doctrine all fits together is to look at a creed or a catechism and see how the great creed writers, the great catechists, the great confessionalists of the church have connected these things. So creeds and confessions offer succinct and thorough summaries of the faith. And I think that might be one of the most important practical uh, things about creeds for church leadership today. I would also add, actually, I'll add one, one further thing. One thing's just come to mind on that. I would also say that in doing that, creeds and confessions actually, again, to use that terribly trendy word, but I think it's appropriate, empower Christians who've not had the privilege of studying theology in great depth. And I'll give you a, a simple example. <clears throat> My first year of teaching at Westminster, I was teaching... Uh, the ancient church class, and I was teaching on origin and moving towards talking about the Trinity. And uh, somebody in the, in the, I think he might have been an auditor, uh, in, the, in the lecture theatre put his hand up and I took the question and he said, uh, 
Well, he said it wasn't a question, it was a statement. He said, I just think this Trinity stuff's nonsense. It's all speculation. He said, I taught my people that God the Father came down and died on the cross. He said, I preached that last Sunday. And I said, well, you preached heresy. You would have been burned for that 400 years ago, and rightly so. Uh, well, I, I, I went home that evening, and I, I said to my, my two boys who were having dinner, and my boys would have been maybe eight and six at the time, and uh, I said to them, boys, how many gods are there? And they said, there is but one God. And I said, uh, in how many persons does this one God exist? And they hesitated before answering, because they looked across at each other uh, at the table, as if to say, okay, Dad's pulling some kind of stunt here. Well, what's he trying to do? So they looked at each other, and then they said, in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I said, congratulations, boys. You have better Trinitarian theology than some of the students at Westminster Seminary in the second year of their MDiv. And uh, now, let's think about that scenario for a second. Did my boys really understand Trinitarianism? No, I don't think so. I think if I'd said to them, so, you know, pass for me the significance of the homoousion homo or the homoousion, what's the, what's the important difference between them? They wouldn't have had a clue what I was talking about. But just imagine if my boys that very, very next Sunday went to church and the person in the pulpit preached, you know, God the Father came down and died on the cross at Calvary. They may not have known why that statement was wrong, but they would have known that it was wrong. They would have been better off than many other people. And that's why I, I think um, you know, teaching catechism, I, Katrina and I were never, when we taught the kids, uh, we, we, we didn't teach them a shorter catechism, we taught them a, a very basic uh, first catechism. We were never too bothered about how much they actually grasped of the words they were learning. We tried to teach them the significance, but more important for us was the fact they learned the words. Because we assume that as they sit under good preaching over the years, slowly but surely those words will be filled out with good content. What we wanted them to have was the form of sound words. So that when somebody comes along using a form of unsound words, as I say, they may not know why it's wrong, but they know that it's wrong. So again, uh, offer succinct summaries of the faith and don't despise teaching kids these things. Um, because... It, it empowers them in ways that one would not expect. You don't have to understand what somebody's saying to know that what they're saying is wrong. I would also add, just as an aside, um, don't get too hung up about having to teach children the shorter catechism, or you know, perish the thought, the larger catechism. That's a really big one. Uh, the, the Westminster divines, uh, I think American Presbyterianism actually... I wouldn't say it's gone wrong, but I think it's deviated from the original intention. I have to go and check this, but I don't think the catechisms were produced for subscription purposes. I think the confession was produced for subscription purposes. The catechisms were produced as models of catechisms for ministers who weren't talented enough to write their own catechisms. So if you haven't got time or the ability to write a catechism, here's one we prepared earlier. Uh, so, I, you know, at, at Cornerstone, we don't push, we do, we have one lady who teaches Sunday school, and I call her the Navy Seal of our Sunday school teachers, because she's the one who teaches the kids the shorter catechism. But the other Sunday school teachers teach the kids a more simple catechism. Uh, we feel no guilt in doing that, because I don't think that the shorter catechism has any uh, particular divinely inspired aspect to it that means that if you're not teaching them that, you're teaching them second best. 
So it's just an aside, I think that it's good to teach kids a good catechism. But don't feel you have to teach the shorter catechism because you know, that may not be entirely appropriate for all children everywhere. And I don't think the Westminster Divines intended it to be. Uh, Puritan pastors after Westminster are always writing their own catechisms. Uh, and I think they wrote them uh, to nuance them to the local conditions in which they found themselves and the particular people they were trying to teach. So, uh, next point, creeds and confessions allow for appropriate discrimination between members and office bearers. I think one of the, uh, the great things about Presbyterianism is we set the bar for membership, uh, communicant membership, pretty low. Uh, we set the bar for eldership very high. And I think that ref represents biblical teaching. Uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's a pretty low bar. That's a pretty low bar. But then when Paul comes on to talk about qualifications for overseers, eh, he sets the bar pretty high. Now, Paul doesn't set the bar spectacularly high. I think what Paul says is you, you need ordinary, respectable, mature men in the faith to be overseers. You don't want the charismatic guy necessarily. You could be a boring guy, but you need somebody who's a safe pair of hands. I think what Paul is talking about when he, he sets out the, the qualification of eldership is that by and large, with the exception of teaching, which I think is a, a technical skill, it has a strong technical component to it that not everybody has, all the other qualifications are things that one would desire every member of the church to aspire to, by and large. That the elder is to model uh, in his life and testimony that to which all Christians should aspire. How do we distinguish between who's qualified for eldership and who isn't? There are the moral qualifications, but there is that teaching clause as well. And I think that's where the confessions of the church come in. What you want on your session are men thoroughly grounded in the full mature testimony of the church that you are. And that requires subscription to the confession. I think uh, it, uh, it cuts off... The problem, you know, there is a problem, I think, with churches that have 10-point doctrinal basis. And that is that there are more than 10 points that it's necessary to believe for the well-being of the church. And if you only have a 10-point doctrinal basis, you will never persuade people that the 11th point is remotely important. I think your confession has to represent, if you like, the maximum doctrinal competence that you want to achieve in your congregation and still have sort of unity. The confession is the aspiration. When we bring people into membership at Cornerstone, we always give them a copy of the confession and the catechisms uh, and say to them, you know, we don't expect you to believe every jot and tittle of this now, but it's our ambition for you that as you worship with us, as you're a member of this church, as you read, as you learn, this is where you will ultimately end up. You'll end up being able to say amen to these documents in their entirety. So that's why I think it's important that we make a distinction between elders and members because elders set the, the pedagogical ambitions morally and intellectually, theologically for the congregation and that is embodied theologically in the creeds and confessions of the church. Creeds and confessions further represent the ministerial authority of the church. The first chapter of the Westminster Confession of course points us back to scripture as authoritative points us back to the God who gave us scripture as authoritative I've already talked about uh, 
uh, the church's authority. The church has no authority which is not given to it by God through scripture. Creeds and confessions do precisely that. And they remind the minister that he's under authority. I was preaching on the third commandment last week, uh, taking God's name in vain, and and, and uh, it caused uh, it caused some discussion in the congregation and at the, the midweek meeting. And I made the point that one of the reasons why we appoint elders in the church is to hold a minister to account for what he teaches. Expect my elders to be supportive, but I also expect them to make sure that what I'm saying is consistent with the vows I've taken relative to what Scripture teaches. I expect my elders to make sure that my authority is clearly ministerial by holding me to account as and when I cross the line. I trust them with my soul, if you like, and I also trust them to patrol my, my, my preaching. And it was clear afterwards, as, as people were chatting out, nobody had ever thought of that. You know, I made the point, it's one thing to be, be wary of a Joel Osteen or some charlatan on the, on the Christian channel. They're easy to spot. The guys who are less easy to spot are the respectable guys in the evangelical and the Presbyterian churches who stand up and preach each week and preach error. And they need to be called to account. Their authority is only ministerial. And you need elders to make it clear to them and to the congregation that that is the case. Creeds and confessions relativize the present. If there is anything that marks out contemporary culture, it is the absolutizing of the present, I think. That everything that happens today is of singular importance. Just look at the language we use. How many, you know, is, is there a week that passes on the news without something being earth-shattering? Uh, or a defining moment? Or a watershed? Even the language we use betrays the fact that we constantly think this day and age is the most important thing there is. Creeds and confessions relativize the present. Why do they do that? They relativize the present by pointing us to the fact that the past is important. We talked last night in some detail about why we live in a culture where, the, where history is, is downplayed, where we don't regard history as being a source of wisdom. Sometimes it can be a source of commercial success. We do have these pastimes kind of stores that sell us a bit of nostalgia. But beyond nostalgia, how important is history? Most people don't think it's very important at all. I think when you recite a creed on a Sunday, you're doing something that might be the most countercultural thing you can possibly do today. You're asserting that there is truth, and you're connecting yourself with the past in a way that says, the past actually shapes and determines what I'm saying today. It's a rebellious thing in contemporary culture to connect yourself to the past. Uh, the irony is that so many of the, the trendy Christians who throw out church tradition, they're not actually rebellious at all. They're merely conforming to the spirit of this age in a way that reading a creed or a confession, subscribing to a creed or confession, it's a rebellious act because it relativizes the present and roots us in the past. And I talked last night, God is a God who works in and through history. The past is important to God. It's, past, it's important to the identity of God's people in the present. One might also say it relativizes my geographical locale. There isn't a nation on earth that doesn't think it isn't the greatest nation on earth. I mean, I know Americans think that. Well, you know, sad to say, the British think that too. You go to Britain and you can break us down. The English think that. The Scottish think that. I have a, 
a Bible. Well, it's sort of only it's only part of a Bible. I have a the cover of a Bible in my office at Westminster, and it's a gilt Bible. It's beautifully tooled, and it says, "The Holy Bible, the secret of England's greatness." Uh, there's no Bible attached to it, uh, and I could I. But even without the Bible attached to it, I reckon I could date that Bible cover to with 10 or 15 years. You know, it's only at the zenith of your power, your economic and military and political power, that you're that arrogant. Uh, and it's fairly easy to locate that in the history of any nation, I think. But when we say something like the Apostles' Creed, not only do we relativize our time, we also relativize our space as well. Uh, is it not a wonderful thing when we say the Apostles' Creed on a Sunday to know that Christians throughout history have said that, but also Christians across the face of the earth are all saying that within hours of us, maybe some of them at the same time. Uh, there is a great unity a great spiritual unity that these things embody that I think can be liturgically enacted on a Sunday that is a truly delightful thing. I have members of the congregation who tell me that they sort of they love the, the, uh, the, the, the announcement of forgiveness after the confession of sin on a Sunday. Well, I love the saying of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed as well because it just binds you together with brothers and sisters across time and space in a way that nothing else seems to do. And that brings me to my final point before I throw us over for a few questions. I also think creeds and confessions help to define one church in relation to another. You know, if ever there is to be ecumenism, true ecumenism, if ever there is to be uh, true church unity, it must begin with all churches laying out very clearly in public precisely what they do and do not stand for. Uh, you cannot be ecumenical with a church that has no creed but the Bible. Because every church and every loony cult as just as the Bible, you can do business with people when you know where they stand. You can do business with people when you know where they stand. I don't want my dad, I think as well, that when we, if we did that seriously, uh, it would lead to true ecumenism in a practical sense. Uh, I, one of the things when I teach Reformation that I emphasize to the students is that it's hard for us today to imagine how heartbreaking it was for the Protestants for the church to fall apart in the 16th century. They had no category for it. They had no category even to think about the church being divided at the start of the 16th century. And it must have, it, it was a burden to them that they knew the very work they were doing was creating something for which they had no category. It was tearing the church apart. Uh, we sit on church unity very lightly today. Is it not odd that we have a, a, a multiplicity of Presbyterian denominations, even in this country, that hold to the same confessional standards. And I know there are slight differences in our, our terms of script, subscription, but they're often not that great. Uh, just as a, as a sort of throwaway at the end, wouldn't it be great if some of our denominations started to vote themselves out of existence and uh, join up with denominations which hold to the same confessional standards that we do? Uh, it'll never happen. Um, uh, it would be great if the PCA voted itself out of existence next year and came and joined us, but I suspect uh, it's, it's not going to happen. But creeds and confessions would make it a possibility because they do bring it home to us that, wow, there are an awful lot of churches in this world that are the same as us. Even though there may be cultural and aesthetic differences, there are an awful lot of churches out there that are the same as us. So why aren't we enjoying a higher degree of uh, institutional unity? So, uh, a number of reasons then why I think creeds and confessions are practically important. 
again, to go back to what I said at the beginning, do not wish to denigrate the Christian who has no creed but the Bible. Many good brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord Jesus and would declare they have no creed but the Bible. But I do think that for the well-being of the church, creeds and confessions have much to commend them. And indeed, I would say that, uh, I would say that one could make a good biblical and historical case for saying that they are uh, an appropriate option uh, for the church at this point. About 10, 15 minutes uh, for questions, so I'll, I'll, I can't guarantee to answer all your questions. I may answer none of them to your satisfaction, but I'll do my best. So if you have any uh, questions or comments, now is, is your time to fire them at me. Yeah, John. Given your remarks about the catechisms intended as kind of a model for those who didn't have the ability or time to write their own, uh, would you mind giving us your estimation of the uh, one, the, the new city? Yeah. Um, yeah, was, the new city is an interesting one because I noticed quite a bit of stuff online about people harumphing about, you know, it's. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it's not a church document. And I, well, actually, that's, that's not an issue in the Reformed faith because catechisms were typically not considered on the whole. You know, just because the church held the whole scale of the Heidelberg Catechism was never thought a problem to produce other catechisms. Uh, they, they didn't function in quite a way. It would be a problem if one guy produced it and then demanded that all churches subscribe to it. That would be be an issue. So I'd say I don't have any principial objection to it at all. Uh, I think it, from memory, it's a while since I looked at it, it was sort of weak on the sacraments, so I would have material criticisms of what it actually says at points. didn't seem to me to be a dramatic improvement on the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, but I have no principial objection to, to somebody producing a catechism uh, in that way. Uh, it seems to me, and I'm not a big fan of the Gospel Coalition, so if anybody's going to criticize it, it's likely to be a guy like me, but I, I have no problem with them doing something like that. It seemed to me uh, a, a hallowed practice within Reformed, Puritan, Presbyterian circles, even though, as I say, I would have certain questions about the, particularly the baptism uh, section. And I understand why it's vague, because they're trying to hold together a, a Baptist and a Peter Baptist constituency. Uh, so that would be my criticism, but I wouldn't have a principial objection to it, as so as some, some articulated. Yeah? Uh, throughout the, the history on uh, the domain of the Catholic Church, did the creeds play an important uh, role uh, on the uh, remnant beside the Catholic Church? It, were, were the creeds picked up outside the Catholic Church? It's a difficult one to answer because, uh, you know, when you do history, you're really dependent upon, you know, you're dependent upon what's left behind. We're dependent upon documents, etc., etc. Uh, and so, a lot of the, the 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 little sects that one hears about in the Middle Ages, we don't know much about what they believed at all, because the only sources we have on them are by and large hostile Catholic sources, rubbishing them. It's even got to the point where, you know, the Cathars, who are a staple of medieval, uh, uh, the teaching of, the Cathars are a staple of medieval historians when they talk about medieval heresy. 
a reputable historian in the last couple of years has, has made a pretty plausible case for saying the Cathars never really existed as the Cathars. They were invented by the people who just objected to certain groups. So I think the answer to the question is we don't really know to what extent the creeds and confessions functioned outside the, uh, the, um, the Catholic Church. When we come to the Reformation, I think when we're looking at sectarian groups, you know, the irony of the no creed but the Bible claim is that the people who made that claim in the Reformation were, her were heretics. It was the Socinians who gave birth to the Unitarians. They were the no creed but the Bible people. Michael Servetus was a no creed but the Bible person. So the irony of, of, of no creed but the Bible being seen as a Protestant hallmark is actually historically odd because the most charitable thing we could say is it's a hallmark of the ultra-Protestants who ended up in very heterodox and heretical positions. So I think, by and large, the history of the church as I read it is uh, groups that don't embody somewhere in their, in their beliefs the Nicene Creed, I'm relatively comfortable in saying they're not Christian in any public or meaningful sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think without doubt the Nicene and Apostles are the best because they're concise and very comprehensive. Um, I think that you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't read particularly well uh, as a liturgical document. Uh, it, I would say it's written by men with great theology and no poetry in their souls, if I could put it that way. Uh, <laughs> It kind of applies, I think, in some ways to our director of public worship as well in the OPC. It's great theology, but it often doesn't read, it doesn't read anything like the Book of Common Prayer, for example. So I think when, when you move beyond the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's relatively slim, slim pickings liturgically. I've seen churches do take uh, a question and answer from the shorter or larger catechism and embody that in, in, in public worship. Certainly we frequently use Heidelberg Catechism question one as our confession of faith. Sometimes we'll use the... We don't have a confession of faith in a formal sense every week. Probably once a month we'll use the Apostles' Creed. Every other month we'll use the Nicene Creed. And every other month we'll use the uh, Heidelberg Catechism question one. So I would say it's, it's slim pickings. book I would recommend is Terry Johnson's Leading in Worship, which is an excellent source of, of liturgical prayers and bits of creeds and confessions for use in public worship. So that's where I would go. I would, I would say, get hold of Terry Johnson's book and, and mine that. Look at some of the historic liturgies and mine that for this sort, of, this sort of thing. But when you come to the 16th century confessions, they were not designed as liturgical documents and therefore are, are not immediately useful in that way. You have to think a bit more creatively about it. Yeah. Well, the second, it's the Second Council of Orange. Um, the Second Council of Orange is a uh, council in the early church where uh, Augustine's theology of grace and predestination is pretty much, in a slightly modified form, codified by, by the church. The interesting thing is that the church then loses them. Uh, the, canons of the, second, the, council of the Second Council of Orange is unknown in the Middle Ages, which is a real problem because Augustine is, is, is pretty much only known through 
books that contain extracted quotations of his writings. So nobody has any broad framework to understand Augustine, and it's one of the reasons why predestination, you know, there is no consensus on predestination in the Middle Ages because the canons of Orange have, have vanished. Um, I think that they're rediscovered in the later Middle Ages. They have some influence, but far more influence in the Middle Age in the Reformation is the fact that the reformers are able to get hold of complete texts of Augustine relatively cheaply. The invention of the printing press, the rise of humanism, this great literary movement that is putting together complete ancient texts and printing them, that's critical. And we know that for all of the, the focus on Luther in Wittenberg, we know that Luther was part of a, a group at Wittenberg that was recovering Augustine's writings and they were studying and talking about Augustine's writings at the University of Wittenberg. And Luther is part of that, you know, be a room discussion where they'd sit around drinking beer and talking about Augustine. So I think the Second Council of Orange is almost more significant for the fact it's lost and the church goes astray than it is for the fact it's rediscovered and becomes a major part, you know, just a series of canons. In the Reformation, it's much more important to be able to argue that Augustine belongs to us. It's Augustine's writings, not the distillation of his thought at the Second Council of Orange that's, that's significant. Yeah. Would it be accurate to say that creeds are reactionary to certain er errors that were prevalent, prevalent during that time? <coughs> in terms of, like, say, the Apostles' Creed, which yeah. is length versus the Nicene Creed, which is a little, yeah. little more comprehensive? Yeah, uh, I, I think you're right. There's, uh, I read the, how exactly to read creeds is debated by historians, but I'm of the mind that creeds to a large extent, tell you what you can't say. So the Chalcedonian formula is the best example of that. The Chalcedonian formula essentially says, you can't say this, you can't say this, you can't say this, and you can't say this. There's this area between these boundaries that we can talk and discuss, but you can't cross these, these four boundaries that we've set up. So there's definitely, you know, creedal formulation is definitely driven by challenges that come, that require clarification of certain biblical teachings. And, you know, another part of that is, I don't think that when they met at Nicaea in 325, they thought they were putting together a document that was going to be binding on the church for all time. I think that understanding come, emerges in the 350s, when Athanasius and his allies are looking back and thinking, you know, it would be really helpful if we started to characterize the, the Council of Nicaea as a kind of universal council. Uh, and then they have another universal council in 381. So there's a whole interesting aspect to the nature and history of creeds that I haven't got into today, but which touches on, on yeah, creeds are reacting to positions that are being put forward where somebody's saying, well, that's an interesting position, but ultimately that Christ can't save. So we have to rule that out of bounds. We put together a creed that rules that out of bounds. Yeah. So that being said,
maybe we should think about revising with regard to this? Yeah. There are a number of issues there that, that, you know, that brings a number of issues to a head. One of them, of course, is every time you revise a creed or confession, you make it less ecumenical than it was that you, you, you do divide yourself from people who subscribe to that same thing, but in a slightly different form. So when America alters the teaching on the civil magistrate, it puts a bit of distance between itself and Scottish Presbyterianism, for example. So there's, a, there's, a, there's the church, there's the ecumenical factor, I think, that has to factor into what revisions we would, we would want to make. Do I see anything coming up? Uh, the big issues of the day seem to me, and it looks to me as if they're going to remain this way for a while, seem to be ethical and moral issues. And I think that the, the Westminster standards deal pretty thoroughly with those or give us principles that we can apply. I like the fact in Presbyterianism we can produce uh, reports that don't rise to the level of confessional statements but can be very useful for a period of time in addressing certain issues. So, for example, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of the United States of, the, of North America, their report on human sexuality, I think is the best 60, 70, 80 pages on the issue you could read anywhere. It's not, you don't have to subscribe to it, but I, I think it's very helpful that the church has produced that document. So I would, would, would respond to your question by saying, I think that what you're raising is an important issue. The church does need to respond to contemporary issues and problems. It would take a lot to persuade me that we need to respond to those issues at a confessional level. I think more often and more conveniently we can respond at the level of, of a report that is helpful in informing ministers uh, about things. So um, and again I think that's a, a helpful aspect of, of Presbyterianism that we're able to pool a large amount of resources to produce those kind of reports. Yeah. Uh, in passing, you mentioned professional um, subscription levels. Yeah. Um, given your study of church history, has, has that always been an issue, or is that kind of a, a more modern issue? Uh, subscription has been uh, an, an issue certainly since the Reformation, uh, and it's taken it has taken various forms. I mean, Anglican subscription involved in 1662 had very specific uh, liturgical requirements that you weren't just subscribing to the 39 articles, you're subscribing to the liturgical forms of the Book of Common Prayer as well. So, you know, the church, when you, when you have a confession of faith, there always has to be some means whereby you connect, you know, you connect the form of sound words to the structure of the church. Uh, you know, and, and when you get to some of the most interesting discussions of subscription occur in Scotland in the late 19th century, a lot of debates and discussions there about uh, subscription terms of subscription to the Westminster, Westminster Confession, it's not the standards in Scotland, it is the confession, it's not the catechisms, uh, are changed in a way that really allow pretty much anybody to subscribe to the Westminster Confession with integrity, and that's a real problem. Uh, terms of confession, they're, they're, they do differ from church to church. I think the important thing about the terms of subscription is they need to be transparent. I don't have a problem with a system where people take exceptions, but we need to be upfront that that's what we're doing. I don't have any problem with the system where people are not allowed to take exceptions, but we have to be consistent with that if that's our position. The terms of subscription need to be transparent and consistently applied, I think, for, for Presbyterianism to work properly. <clears throat> yeah? So you mentioned yesterday uh, man's fear of history How much of that do you think ties into not acknowledging history and in fact 
Uh, well, the simple answer to that question is, yeah, it goes all the way. I mean, uh, our, our rejection of, of authority is part and parcel of, of what, what goes on at the fall and, and a consequence of the fall. So, absolutely, uh, I think the rejection, of, the rejection of authority as authority uh, is clearly uh, a, a result of the fall. Now, there are authorities that need to be rejected. But the rejection of the idea of authority as a whole and the assertion of individual autonomy is clearly a, a, a part and parcel of, of fallen human nature. So, yeah. Time for one more, I think. Can you just comment on the use of confessions in family worship? Um, my wife and I, didn't, we didn't typically use the confession in family worship. We taught our kids a little catechism. So that's, that's how we used it. Uh, I think confessions are, their key function is for office bearers and to show people in the church your, your theological and ethical ambition for them. So I would not really, you know, I think if it, it's to the wisdom of the parents. If you've got kids who lap, this, lap the confession up, then do it. Uh, but it's for the parents, I think, to discern what works best with their kids to, to get the kids to where they should be. Theologically, maybe it's the shorter catechism, maybe it's the first catechism, maybe it's the confession. Uh, I think the important thing is that families are worshiping together, and there's a pedagogical dimension to that. Should we take one last question? Yeah. So I really appreciate how you've shown that confessions and creeds are helpful and useful and appropriate. I haven't yet read your book, but the word imperative is a very strong word. Yeah. Well, the, the, there are various uh, advantages to them, but I would say the imperative aspect to me is Paul's teaching. Overseers are former sound words. Now, I said yesterday, it's possible church history could have developed in a way where maybe something else fulfilled the function that we now, you know, that is now fulfilled by creeds and confessions. But history didn't develop that way; it developed this way, and therefore, I would say today, you know, we can't, you know, we can't reinvent the wheel. We are in the, in the situation in which we find ourselves, where Paul's command to preserve the gospel by holding fast to a form of sound words has been answered by the church over the centuries, producing creeds and confessions. So, and I wanted to get at the idea of, you know, if you say you have no creed but the Bible, but the Bible demands that you have something that fulfills the function of a creed, what are you going to do? I see the creeds and confessions as summarizing God's speech to us and not our speech in response to God. But certainly there is, you know, there's a responsive aspect in creeds and confessions. We have this revelation. What are we going to do with it? Well, we respond to it by producing creeds and confessions. But I'm not sure about the sort of the dialogical uh, aspect of it. So maybe I should say I, I need to think about that. I'm uncomfortable saying, to, uh, affirming that at this point. Joe.
thank you, Dr. Truman. I think it has, uh, has been a profitable time. Uh, too brief, for sure. We would love to have him for a few more hours, but he does have to preach tomorrow morning. Uh, <laughs> starting his, uh, his sermon on, uh, I guess it's one of two parts, maybe three parts on, on the fourth commandment, uh, honoring the Sabbath day. Uh, so we've got to let him get back to the Philadelphia area. He's got a flight out at 3 p.m. roughly, and uh, so he'll be around for uh, for a little bit after uh, this session. We'll bring this to a close. Uh, there there are still some remaining refreshments, I believe, uh, so go in and, and gobble those up uh, just so we don't have them sitting around. If they sit around during the week, I eat them, and that's not <laughs> that's not a good thing, even though I, you know, I, I think it at the time. <laughs> so, so eat them up uh, so they're not sitting around. Uh, but let me, let me close out our time here with prayer. Dear God, we do thank you. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your word. We thank you, Father, for uh, the way that you have, uh, the way that you've given to us the means of interpreting your word. And we thank you for the creeds, which are uh, a nice, succinct uh, summary of interpretation of your word. We pray that just as we uh, might use your word properly, that we might interpret it rightly, that we do the same with the creeds and the, cate the catechisms, the confessions that the church has produced. Help us, Lord, to be stewards of the truths that are found in the church's confessions so that, Lord, we would be good stewards of your word itself. Lord, now we pray for your blessing upon us as we depart from this place. We pray, Lord, that you uh, would bring us uh, to our places of worship, our churches tomorrow, to worship you. And we pray, Lord, that we might, uh, as a result of this conference, uh, might worship you with uh, greater zeal, with greater attention, with greater desire to honor your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, make your way to the fellowship hall. Hang out for a little while. Uh, if you stay too long, you might be tasked with cleaning up. But, uh, but stick around as long as you can. <laughs>